0: education research has a problem. The work of brilliant education researchers often doesn't reach the practice of brilliant teachers. Classroom Caffeine is here to help. Each week, I invite a top education researcher to sit down and talk with teachers about what they have learned from years of study. This week, Dr. David Ranking tells us about formative design research in the classroom. Dr. Ranking is known for his long-standing commitment to education and his contributions to the field of design-based research. David is a distinguished professor at Clemson University and works as a semi-retired professor at the University of Georgia. For more information about our guest, stay tuned to the end of the episode. So, pour a cup of your favorite morning drink and join me, your host, Lindsay Persson, for Classroom Caffeine research to energize your teaching practice. Thank you so much for talking with me today, David. I really appreciate your time.
1: It's my pleasure to be here, and it's a wonderful opportunity to uh, talk directly to teachers through this new digital medium.
0: So I just have a few questions for you today that I'm I'm hoping you will answer for us uh, to help teachers understand the work you've done. So from your own experiences in education, would you please share with us one or two moments that inform your thinking now?
1: Well, it's certainly hard to choose. And as I reflect back on my experiences of uh, being a classroom teacher, there were so many opportunities in which I had to learn about how it, how to be a good teacher and uh, the students taught me many things. But I think today you would like me maybe to talk a little bit about uh, my experiences uh, during my career as an educational researcher, and I, I think of one event that was—I uh, sometimes call it a conversion experience—when I was in my doctoral program many, many years ago at the University of Minnesota, uh, preparing to become. Uh, we didn't—we didn't have literacy researchers then; we had reading researchers. And my preparation, like all of my peers, was to do. Uh, Scientific experiments was the model that we used to conduct our work. Uh, We learned a lot of statistics, and uh, early on in my career, that's the way I approached doing research in classrooms. You had an experimental group uh, with some particular educational intervention, and you had a control group. And... Uh, then you gathered a lot of quantitative data and you analyzed it statistically so oh I guess it was in the 1990s I uh, got a grant a small grant from our professional organization to do a study because it related to uh, doing what we call book reviews as opposed to book ref- uh, book reports because we're using technology for students to do not book reports, but to use multimedia, is was very crude in those days, to re- react to the books they were reading at, in a middle school. And almost from day one, it was not just a, a failed experiment, it was a disaster. <laughs> and uh, we, for, for example, the principal of the school had the audacity to move all of the, the, the re- readers who were struggling into one of the teacher's classrooms which, of course, is a perfectly reasonable thing to do because she was the best of the teachers in, in the principal's mind. And we said, wait, you can't do that. It'll mess up our statistical analysis. Then some of the uh, control group teachers saw what, we're, what our experimental group teachers were doing. They said, I want to do that too. And we said, wait, you can't do that now because uh, that'll mess up our experiment. Well, you maybe get this, uh, the uh, idea here that uh, the things that we were trying to do in our research were at odds with good instruction and good decisions that people were making, and we were for- forcing the, the world of education to conform to our experimental model. And it, it was a very clear, uh, a very clear thing to me uh, that, that there's something amiss here. And about that time, I read an article in uh, an Educational researcher by a fellow named Dennis Newman, and he wrote about what he called a formative experiment. And I, because, I'll back up just a minute, when I, we, when I was debriefing with my uh, graduate students who were helping me on this project, we said, well, this really failed, uh, but we did learn some things. But then one of the students also used a phrase that caused us pause and uh, was part of my convergence. He says, well, sure, we had these difficulties because the teacher is a nuisance variable, and in the world of statistics, yeah, that's true. But as we looked around, was, wait a minute—that is not an appropriate way <laughs> to talk about our good colleagues in the classroom. So it it impressed on me that uh, we were clearly at odds with what was going on. And so Dennis Newman, this form of the experiment, he said, you know, this is there are other ways to think about doing research in classrooms, and it involves a, uh, an approach, an attitude, a rationale that fits. It, it, it fits what's going on in classrooms in a way that allows us to find out more about what could is happening and could be happening without uh, the research methodology getting in the way. So that was my uh, that was my confer- conversion experience, and uh, maybe uh, I, I hope is a response to your your question.
0: Absolutely, it sure is. And David, my next question for you is, what would you like teachers to know about your research?
1: Well, I guess what I'd most like them to know is that the approach I use, uh, what I call formative experiments uh, after Dennis Newman, which is often referred to in a more general sense of design-based research, is uh, very much aligned with what teachers do every day. Sort of the essence of, of teaching, I think, is... You see a difficulty, a challenge, or you have a goal, and you try something. And you see if it works. And hopefully, if it doesn't work, you think about why isn't it working. Or if it does work, you say, well, why is it working uh, so well so that I can do the same thing next time? And in a nutshell, that's what this research is. We just do it a little more systematically. We have a goal, uh, a pedagogical goal that we want to accomplish. It may be uh, something learned. It may be a new skill, whatever might be a goal, uh, an instructional goal in a, in a classroom. And we think about an intervention that we think has a potential to achieve that goal. And we draw on... Um, existing research or theoretical perspectives, whatever, that justify that the goal is an important one and that the intervention is a reasonable way to go about doing the goal. But we have no illusions that first conception of that intervention will be perfect and work perfectly. So we connect with teachers who buy into our goal and are at least willing to try the intervention. Uh, We try to specify some Essential elements of that uh, intervention that you know usually maybe three three things that you know it has to have discussion or it has to have this. I mean they're very general. Uh, that you know we have they the, we have to do these things, but there are many many ways we can do them, and we negotiate with the teachers with uh, whatever context they're in and their situation. We say well they have to have these three things, but you know there are lots of ways of. Doing that, so let's talk about that. How can we make that happen in your classroom? And that becomes our first iteration of, a, uh, of this intervention. And then we, uh, so we follow their lead. We don't, you know, the only, you know, you have, if we don't make them sign a contract, but basically they have to say, you have to make some, you know, for us to work together, we have to make some space, and it has to have these two or three things. We may offer suggestions they want, you know, how it might happen. But we we sort of form a partnership with the teachers, and then we just dive in and try it. And uh, we collect data. Sometimes the teacher is literally a a research partner, but sometimes they don't want to be. It's fine. We ask several questions. Uh, One is, you know, what is enhancing or inhibiting uh, in terms of this intervention in reaching the goal? And we asked, what are the unintended consequences that seem to be happening? Which is something a lot of research methods tend to just ignore and yet sometimes can be extremely important. We asked, is the environment being transformed in any significant way? Because we've we've spent a lot of time in the classroom before we work with it, actually implement the intervention. So we think we've got a pretty good understanding of it. And, you know, maybe we see, for example, that there's a a lot of teacher talk and a less student talk. And so as we move along, well, maybe this intervention is changing that dynamic in some way. So we continually fine-tune the intervention based on the data that we're getting. So we capitalize on the aspects of the intervention that seem to be enhancing its effectiveness in whatever sense, and try to neutralize those things that seem to, or make adjustments that address those things that aren't working. That's why I say the model is is just a little more systematic uh, thing that teachers do every day. So it's usually a pretty, the hard part is getting them to let loose of their conception of education research as an experiment. And they want us to be in charge and tell them what to do, and they are a little bit disoriented when we say, no, no, we, we want to work together on this, and there's no set plan in advance, and uh, that, that's sometimes a little uh, disoriented. We have to, to work at, at that. We also have to help them understand that failure is data, that uh, we, are, we are afraid of failure. We don't in, in education research, we do not publish about our failures, and yet in engineering, they actually go out of their way to try to find where something fails. We don't have to try. It happens naturally in education. So, uh, you know, I can remember times when I've gone in uh, uh, to speak with teachers in the middle of a project, and they have kind of a, a sad look, and they say, you know, it's just not working. And then I go, good. Not good in that sense, but wow, we have an opportunity here to learn something. Why isn't it working so well? We're also very sensitive to teachers' reactions. Sometimes it's just when we say something, you sort of sense a look in their eyes and that this isn't comfortable for them. We want to know why. It's okay. Even resistance to something. we do. One of my students uh, was working with a teacher where she promised she was going to do something related to the intervention. She gets there, she doesn't do it. She comes back the next day, she says she doesn't do it. And pretty soon we figured, wait a minute, there's some reason that she's not doing this, so let's talk about it. And we figured out some interesting uh, things about her uh, perceptions and things that, that could be done that, that met that, uh, the, their concerns. And that is really gives us some very deep pedagogical insights that are not just interesting from an intellectual point of view or a research point of view, but informs practice. So one of the uh, distinct benefits of this uh, approach of research is we're not looking for grand theories. Uh, We're looking for what we call pedagogical assertions or or theories, or some people call them design principles. So they're immediately relevant to teachers' classroom practice they're not uh, and we get published in good research journals too it's sometimes a little hard because some of our colleagues don't quite understand this although it's uh, becoming much more uh, common in the literature and easier to publish this type of work but it, the other interesting thing about this approach to research is it originated within the field of education our other uh, methods of research the scientific method qualitative ethnographic approaches are all sort of imported from other fields, but design-based research, and you know that's where it gets its name, we're trying to design good instruction, and what can we learn from the process of design, and so it's much closer to the world of practice, and interestingly it's a very easy sell to many of my colleagues who are researchers because they say, finally, it's an approach where I can actually consider myself as a researcher, but I don't have to give up the instincts that I have and the, the values I have as a classroom teacher, because most of us have been classroom teachers. Well, so I guess that's uh, uh, my response to your, your uh, second question.
0: So, and that leads very naturally to the next question. <clears throat> um, you've, of course, published a book on formative design, mm-hmm. and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how teachers can use these ideas on their own, maybe with some printed resources. If they don't have a university they can reach out to to partner in the way you have worked with other teachers. Mm-hmm. How can teachers use these principles of formative design to to shape their own practice and perhaps to reframe their thinking around failure in education, yeah. and, and how do we learn from that?
1: Well, you know... Uh... It, it's As I said uh, in my response, to the pre- it, it's a matter of degree. I mean, teachers are doing this every day. We're just doing it a little more systematically. But there maybe are some things, I hadn't really thought that much about it, but I think there, there are some things that might I- inform teachers uh, by being familiar with uh, uh, at least the, the general uh, format or, or, or uh, re- a rationale for, for this uh, approach. One, as I just referred to, we all fail. And we're hard on ourselves. And somewhere along the line, we got the idea that, uh, you know, f- you know, failure me- means that we're a failure. And, uh, and that every this day has approach, to be perfect. That's right. Yeah. And, and this approach, uh, you know, allows you to forgive yourself and be comfortable with yourself. And and, and one of the interesting things about um, our research as well, I think I may be the only person with some of my uh, doctoral students who have published an article that wasn't exactly documenting failure, but it was documenting that we didn't succeed the way we thought we would. and. We really learned a lot. And one of the things we learned is that the, the goal that we were trying to accomplish pedagogically was really, really difficult to attain. And I think that's important for teachers to realize. Some things are just really hard to accomplish. And that gives you a little more confidence and peace of mind, too, to know that, hey, I'm not the only one that's having difficulty with this. These guys did this research, they worked in classrooms, and they documented that uh, it, it, it's not an easy thing to do. So I'm a good company. But uh, a, there are some uh, parallels of this approach to action research that some of the teachers may be familiar with, where teachers are the researchers. So. Uh, there's a you know there are a lot of good sources available to acquaint teachers with with that those kind of perspectives where maybe they're at least in the back of their mind somewhere they're considering themselves I'm like a researcher I, I'm doing the kinds of things a researcher is doing and to you know when i uh, when I taught teacher ed courses uh, you know all, uh, all the pre-service teachers want to know about classroom management how do I manage behavior and I said well that's an important thing but there's an equally important thing, and that is you managing your own behavior. So behavior management has two dimensions. and I don't mean that in a negative sense. Sure. I mean, it means simply reflecting on what I do and its effects. And maybe there's a better way. Maybe certain things I'm doing uh, are not in my interest, best interest as a teacher and perhaps not the best interest. So this, this reflection on what I'm doing. And it kind of uh, is, is more of a neutral thing in a, in a framework like this. You know, it's, it's not like burying your soul. It's just a, a more detached uh, uh, way of viewing your own practice.
0: And I think there's some power in that detachment because then we can forgive ourselves for mistakes we've made and move forward and, and learn from them in order to build a positive practice for ourselves and students.
1: And, and you know, another thing that's, uh, you know, we, we typically try to do this in teams. And so, you know, we're not alone. You know, in the sessions that we were in this morning, we talked about communities of practice being more than, you know, meeting once in a while with your colleagues, uh, you know, there's some kind of a supportive community. Actually, there, this goes by many different names. There's something called Japanese lesson studies that, uh, if anyone is interested, they might look up. Where uh, this originated in Japan, thus the name, where the teachers work very collaboratively and analytically together in working towards uh, common pedagogical goals. And uh, so, this this methodology has a lot of different branches and tributaries that uh, kind of spring from the the same central core of ideas.
0: So can you summarize that process for us? I know you you gave us sort of a step-by-step earlier, a Mm -hmm. play-by-play, but if a a teacher wanted to try something new today, Mm -hmm. what what might might they do?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I empathize with teachers they're living in the moment, and <laughs> yeah, it is hard to find time to to do that kind of reflection. But uh, and and I think part of that is uh, a structural problem. They are not provided with time, uh, the appropriate amount of time to plan and think and reflect. Uh, but to the extent that uh, that is uh, that's possible, you know, going through kind of, sort of you know. Uh, and this uh, is something I impress on pre-service teachers too. You know, you don't just go through the motions, and because somebody said, think through why is this important? You know, in the ultimate scheme of things, what I'm teaching this is this goal. Is it really a, 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 a worthy? Can I can I explain why it's important to to someone else? And I think that's a good starting point, and then you know, wherever you you know, what makes you think this particular or intervention and goodness knows some teachers do not have this kind of freedom today but you know what makes this a good option and uh, don't expect it to work <laughs> perfectly the first time and what uh, seems to make it work well or not so well and what can I do about it I don't know it's it's Maybe a little oversimplistic, but it's that it's very parallel to the kind of things we do in in our research.
0: So, David, my next question for you is: Given the challenges of today's educational climate, what message do you want teachers to hear?
1: Well, I'm tempted to say you have my sympathies, and maybe hang in there. <laughs> One of the things that uh, drew me to teaching and was most Uh, satisfactory to me when I was a teacher was the ability to think creatively and uh, do things that may be a little wild and crazy, but fun to do with my students. And I think I had, at least uh, it wasn't just all that, it was uh, that, that might help them in some unique way or engage them in some sort of way that was a little different or offbeat and I I relished those moments when I was successful And the the teachers letting me do this and wow wait nobody asked us to write you know I can remember when one of my students found an error in the old I don't know if people remember the SRA local the reading level stuff that was so popular when I was and and the student found an error in a question and so I said, okay, let's all get together. We're going to write a letter to the company. And we got a response, you know. So it, it wasn't the great grammar lesson I just did. It was those moments when I thought I was doing something a little more transcendent and important and engaging uh, with my students that, that really kept uh, the notion of being a teacher motivating and alive. I, I think the, from what I can tell, and my wife is a teacher, by the way, or a retired teacher, is that there's just too much drudgery and uh, lockstep uh, following of curriculum, uh, curricula and uh, objectives and, of course, testing. I hear it time and time again. And somewhere along the line, we've really narrowed the whole objective of, of teaching and learning in schools uh, to its uh, least common denominator, maybe, uh, you know, the test score, progress on this and that. And uh, I think uh, it, it's, uh, it, to some extent, it's always been a challenge for a teacher to be creative and rise above those things. But today, it's it's a huge wall that you have to climb. <laughs> and I, um, I have a great deal of respect for those teachers who can manage that. And I think you have to be very... Yeah, I, I wouldn't let go of the passions that you have that led you into teaching. And somehow you have to protect that. And yet... Manage and survive, and it's very hard for beginning teachers to do that. We know that all the th- wonderful ideas we give them in our teacher preparation programs. It's very difficult in some cases for them to go out and, and and have to really, if not buck the system, to manage the system, and they just don't know how to do that yet, and they're vulnerable. So, I hope that that you know for those teachers who are willing to invest in preserving that area of passion and creativity and all of the lofty reasons that we went into education can survive, if not thrive, and, and somehow find a way to, to keep that alive in their teaching.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today, David. Um, I appreciate you being here with me for this very first episode, and, and we look forward to hearing more from you about your work. Thank you. Dr. David Ranking is a prominent researcher in the field of formative design research, technology in reading and writing, and is known for his long-standing commitment to education. He is a 2008 inductee into the Reading Hall of Fame. He has had several substantial federally funded grants and has published in Reading Research Quarterly, The Journal of Literacy Research, Journal of Literacy and Technology, Language Arts. Journal of Early Childhood Literacy, and the Journal of Curriculum and Instruction, as well as in many edited books. David has been the editor of Reading Research Quarterly and the Journal of Literacy Research. He is a graduate of the University of Minnesota. David started his long career as an elementary and middle school teacher. Dr. Ranking has worked at Rutgers University, he's a distinguished professor at Clemson University, and has been a longtime faculty member in reading education at the University of Georgia, where he still works as a semi-retired professor. For the good of all students, good research should inform good practice and vice versa. Listeners are invited to respond to our guests, learn more about our guest research, and suggest a topic for an upcoming episode through this podcast website at classroomcaffeine.com. If you've learned something today or just enjoyed listening, please subscribe to this podcast. I raise my mug to you, teachers. Thanks for joining me.